The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Galen Druk, who is the host of the 538 Politics podcast for ABC News. And we're going to be talking yet again about the midterms, because this is the big story in the American news at the moment and in American politics at the moment. And there is just over a week to go, Galen. The story of the last few weeks, which we've covered a bit on Americana, has been that Republicans are gaining in the polls. The Democrats had a pretty good summer, it seemed. They seem to be changing the race, both in the Senate and in the House, to a certain extent. And that narrative has now sort of faded a little bit and we're hearing a lot more talk about the economy being the major issue and Republicans win on the economy. Let me ask you, first of all, as someone who's very plugged into this, what are you seeing in the latest polls? Are we seeing that trend continuing in favour of the Republicans? I think that it's stabilised a bit. We saw over the span of about a week or so, our forecast at 538 go from, you know, Democrats having about a two and three chance of winning the Senate to about a 50-50 proposition. We saw Republicans' odds of taking the House go from about a 70% chance to greater than an 80% chance. Things have stabilized a bit at this point, and in recent days, that those numbers have been about the same. And I think what's important to keep in mind here is that when we look at broad historical trends of what happens during a midterm, we see that the party out of power generally does quite well. There are a couple examples of that not happening, which we can get into. But for the most part, we expected this fall to look a little bit more like last fall, when we had a Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, winning the governorship of Virginia, a state that Biden won by 10 points. We saw Republicans coming close in the New Jersey governor's race. And honestly, if you had asked me then, is this what next fall will look like? I would have said, yeah, probably. What really upended everything was the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade at the end of June. And that wasn't a popular decision looking at the polls amongst the American public. And so there was a backlash. Part of the reason we see the party out of power do well in a midterms environment is because the party in power has all the power. And oftentimes there's a sort of balancing act that the American public does. We call this thermostatic public opinion, which is, you know, once you get power and do the things that you want to do that the public in some ways asked you to do, there's a bit of a backlash. And the oddity of the Dobbs decision is that it was the party out of power that got to implement a really significant policy. And so the backlash benefited Democrats. That's been fading a little bit from public consciousness. But also in truth, the economy and inflation never totally was supplanted by abortion as an issue. In issue polling, the economy and inflation have been number one this entire time. You know, abortion, according to one Gallup poll, 
abortion hit an all-time high of 8% of Americans saying it was the most important issue facing the country. It's back down to 4% now, which is still higher than it used to be. But like, put that in perspective of, say, almost 40% of Americans saying the economy is the most important issue. So I think what we're seeing now is, is to some degree, a shift in emphasis, but also sort of historical trends setting in. And then on top of that, to get a little bit more wonky, pollsters implementing a likely voter model. So sort of taking more seriously who's actually going to show up to the polls, not just what Americans writ large say they want. And that gets tighter, that gets tighter and more accurate as you approach the, vote, the day of the vote. Yeah, I mean, likely voter models are a bit of an art, right? I mean, I think we've all come to reckon over the past several years that polling is both an art and a science. And you have to make, in making a likely voter model, some assumptions about who is actually going to show up to the polls. And like when you look at the polls, you can generally see there's a registered voter model, which is if you ask all registered voters, which party would you like to see in office? What policies would you like to see implemented? What would you? What are you voting on? You'll get one answer. And then if you implement your likely voter model, you'll sometimes get another answer. And what we see repeated in polling this year is that likely voters are more likely to be Republican than registered voters. And that is backed up in some other polling that we see showing that Republicans have about a 10-point advantage in terms of enthusiasm to vote. Now, everyone is enthusiastic to vote. And in fact, we're seeing somewhat historic levels of enthusiasm for a midterm election. So it's unlikely that we're going to see something like we saw in 2010 or 2014, where the likely voter was very different from the registered voter because Democrats just simply didn't show up to the polls in big numbers. We saw record low voter turnout in 2014, actually, for a midterm environment. I think we're in some ways in America in an era of high turnout elections. And so Democrats can at least rest easy knowing that there's not going to be some, I think, 2014 style dynamic where they're losing a bunch of seats because Democrats simply don't turn out. It's interesting what you said about abortion being, what did you say, four, four or 5% of voters ranked that as their most important issue? Yeah, and it varies based on poll. Yeah, and that wouldn't necessarily be for. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily be four or five percent put on the Democratic side. There could be quite a lot of pro-lifers who would put that as their main issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, traditionally, what we've seen is that conservative voters are more motivated by the issue of abortion than liberal voters. That had been the case, but that was even changing a little bit before the Dobbs decision. And I think it's fair to say that it really changed after the Dobbs decision. You know, historically, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And so conservative voters had more of a reason to be upset with the status quo of abortion law in the country. Obviously, when that was repealed or not repealed, obviously, the Supreme Court overturned it, the precedent, Democrats had more of a reason to be angry with the status quo. And I think the evidence will bear out that voters are oftentimes more motivated by dissatisfaction and frustration than satisfaction. You know, Politicians will often say, you know, if you give me the power to enact my agenda, it will have positive electoral consequences because our base will turn out to thank us. You know, saying thank you by voting is significantly less common than saying like F you by voting. And so it's reasonable to understand, and, and we saw this in the polling too, that more Democrats were saying that they were motivated by the issue of abortion after the Dobbs decision than 
Republicans. Well, turning to the economy, it looks like sort of almost record good numbers in terms of favoritism for the Republican Party on the issue of the economy. I think Republicans have, over the last 20 years, usually had an advantage. I may be wrong here. But not always necessarily on the economy uh, have they been, you know, the favourite party of Americans on that issue. How significant is that gap now? Is it getting greater? Are we seeing historic highs for the Republicans on the economy or historic lows for the Democrats on the economy? Yeah, one recent poll that I saw from Gallup is... Gallup is a polling outfit that I've already mentioned during our conversation, and they have asked for decades what Americans think the biggest problem facing the country is. And it's an open-ended poll. And so folks can really say anything they want. And then they bucket the responses into categories. But of course, the number one issue that Americans were saying was the economy and inflation. And then they ask a follow-up question, which is, whatever you mentioned was the most important issue, which party do you think would do a better job handling it? And Gallup found in this most recent poll where the economy and inflation was number one, that Republicans had a record advantage for being the party that Americans thought would be most likely to handle that issue. Now, I think a couple things are going on. One, in an increasingly polarized era, you know, your issues with the economy and sort of who you might think will do a better job of handling the economy are tempered a little bit. We simply see smaller swings from one party to the other because people are pretty set in their partisan ways. And so to give you one example, I think in a recent New York Times-Siena College poll, Republicans had a 14-point advantage on the issue of the economy. But when you actually looked at vote intention, it was about even between Democrats and Republicans. That is to say that there are voters out there that are prioritizing other things, or just have an allegiance to the Democratic Party that won't be overcome by concerns about the economy. And in a midterm environment, actually, the voters who are likelier to turn out tend to be older, whiter, better off. And those are sometimes voters who are more willing to prioritize social issues than economic issues. Lower propensity working class voters, you will see in polls, are far more likely to prioritize things like inflation, the economy, crime, etc., than your sort of better off suburban college educated voter who may be thinking more about abortion or other societal issues like democracy and January 6th, or even, you know, gun control. Mm. President Joe Biden has said that it's been back and forth for the last few weeks between the Republicans and Democrats, and that there could still be one event or one news sort of cycle that could change momentum back in favour of the Democrats. What do you think that could be? I mean, could it be a a sudden decline in gas prices, in petrol prices in America? What what sort of one event do you think could swing things back towards the Democrats? That's a good question. So I think over the summer, we have seen the emergence of the gas price determinist form of analysis in America, which is like, yes, Democrats started doing better over the summer after the Dobbs decision, but also keep in mind that gas prices were falling. And so that contributed to it. And then it seemed like Democrats' advantage in the polls was stemmed as gas prices started to rise again. More recently, they have been falling again. So for the gas price determinists out there, perhaps this is sort of evidence that Republicans' gain in the polls ebbed a little bit as gas prices started to go down again. I mean, empirically, looking across multiple presidents and multiple elections, we do see a correlation between gas price and presidential approval. 
but I think it would be a little crazy to say that that's like the only thing determining the election. You know, in a presidential election, things can swing pretty wildly. And that's because there's one candidate running in 50 different states in essentially 50 different elections. In a midterm environment, you have a different Senate candidate in all 33 of the Senate races, and you have a different House candidate in all 435 of the House races. And so it's not going to be the case that like, you know, for example, the Republican in Georgia, Herschel Walker, faces a scandal, and all of a sudden, Republicans' odds in all of the Senate races change. Now, in a presidential environment, everyone can remember back to the Comey letter just a dozen days before the presidential election in 2016. We saw polls shift significantly across a bunch of different states because it was sort of the same candidate facing one scandal affecting all of the states. So things can move a little more slowly in a midterm environment, but we live in a volatile world and there's a land war going on in Europe. You know, prices are at 40-year highs. We've seen the stock market go up and down plenty over the past year or so. And, you know, people see gas prices on their way to work every single day and so it can have a significant psychological impact. And so all of this matters, you know, the election isn't over until the last person has voted on November 8th. I'll just add one more thing, which is that increasingly people are voting early, which means that some sort of event in the final week of an election will have a slightly lesser impact than it maybe once had. In fact, by election day in 2020, 70% of voters had already voted. So that's something to keep in mind when thinking about you know, shifts in the issue environment or news events over the final week. Well, let's talk about election night itself. For people uh, observing in Britain and, and any American listeners to, to Americano who may be looking out on the night, I see 538 have looked at sort of key districts for the House. Let's start in the House. Key districts to look out for. What would be a sort of useful early indicator that we might get early on in the evening that might tell you which way this this night is going to go. North Carolina's 13th district is a good district to look at. I would say first and foremost because it's on the eastern seaboard and so polls will close early, you know, for us covering elections night of it's kind of a whirlwind. We got to start early when the polls close on the eastern seaboard and then we don't really have results until polls close on the west coast. But for people trying to read the tea leaves and get some sense of where the night is headed, you want to look at those eastern states. And so North Carolina 13 is a good one. According to 538's forecast, North Carolina's 13th is one of the likeliest tipping point districts. And a tipping point district is a fancy way of saying it's one of the most important districts in the country. You know, it's the district that will put one party or the other over the edge in terms of getting a majority in the House. So North Carolina's 13th is in the Raleigh suburbs. It's a little better educated, a little better off than your average district in the country. It's kind of like 20 of these districts that are generally suburban, have maybe some swingier voters in them, and they're going to kind of be determining this election because so many of our districts aren't actually competitive both because of increasing polarization and because of gerrymandering. And so North Carolina's 13th is a good one. And North Carolina is maybe liable to count faster than a state like New York. You know, there's another sort of good district in New York's 22nd, which was, I think, the 
the districts have changed since because of redistricting, but it was, I think, the closest House race or maybe one of the two closest House races in 2020. And 2020, of course, Biden won, but it was very close. It wasn't the blowout that we sometimes see when a new party comes into power and wins some big majority in the House. Democrats have a five-seat majority. And so that means that one... Republicans have an easier job of flipping the House back. But two, it also may mean that we're not going to see some kind of wild, you know, the average going back decades of the out party's performance in a midterm environment is flipping 26 seats. 26 seats is on the higher end of what Republicans might do, because you have to keep in mind that oftentimes the midterms come after some kind of blowout. Like think of Obama's performance in 2008. He had you know, a 60-seat majority in the Senate, a wide majority in the House. And so when the backlash comes in 2010, there's a lot more vulnerable, you know, Democratic-controlled districts in Republican territory that'll flip really easily. That's less the case this time around. And you would say generally it's suburban or exurban, I think they like to call them in America, districts that are the ones to watch out for because they tend to be the most in flux. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, perhaps similar to the United Kingdom's dynamic, we see pretty significant geographic polarization. And so the sort of dense urban areas in the country are solidly blue, the rural areas are solidly red, and the contested territory falls somewhere in between. And, you know, I think it varies, you know, north to south a little bit, east to west, how Democratic or Republican the suburbs may be. It even depends, you know, it may vary by state. Like the suburbs of New York City in New York State may be a little more Democratic leaning than the suburbs of New York City in New Jersey, for example. There are just some cultural differences there. But in general, this is the territory where the election really plays out. And the suburbs, I think we have like conventional idea of what the suburbs look like based on you know, the decades following the 1950s, the suburbs in the U.S. have changed significantly. There are are suburbs that are, you know, majority minority now. I would say in 2018, our last midterm, spent a lot of time in Texas's 7th district, which is in West Houston. It's got like the wealthiest suburbs in Houston, and it is majority minority. And so, you know, it's not just these sort of like, leave it to beaver, white picket fence, whatever voters who are deciding these elections. And really, honestly, increasingly Latino voters in the U.S. are the epitome of swing voters. We saw that in 2020, there was an eight-point shift towards Trump compared with 2016. It looks like Democrats haven't been able to stem that tide. And at the very least, Republicans have kept their gains and maybe increasing them in this election. That's very interesting. I I noticed you were talking recently about a district in Texas. I think, is it Texas 15? Yes. Which is very large Hispanic, 80% Hispanic vote and swinging dramatically towards the Republicans, it seems. Is that right? Yeah. So I mentioned that in 2020, the Latino vote swung eight points towards Trump. However, in South Florida and South Texas, it was significantly more dramatic even than that. So the border counties saw double-digit swings towards Trump compared with the 2016 election. We saw something similar in the Miami area. You know, this is 
a somewhat unique part of the country that experiences the border crisis really intensely, at least in Texas. It's also, you know, a lot of Latinos in Texas have been in Texas since before the U.S.-Mexico border was there. And so they've been in the country a long time. They're not new immigrants. The issue of sort of illegal immigration and a pathway to citizenship may not affect them from the perspective of they themselves or their family seeking a pathway to citizenship. It's more an issue of we're having a massive influx of migrants in our community. And so Democrats often will speak to Latino voters as if, first and foremost, they want a pathway to citizenship for immigrants in the country illegally. But that's oftentimes not the case. In fact, that's almost never the case. You see that the number one issue for Latino voters is the economy, just like every other voter. And you also see that there's more of a concern about crime, I would say, than than the American average or for sure your average Democratic voter. South Florida is another unique context where there's a lot of Cuban immigrants, Venezuelan immigrants who feel strongly about the issue of socialism and sort of having a high profile democratic socialist compete for the democratic nomination in 2020 maybe didn't help Democrats argument for being not democratic socialist, or at least not open to the ideas of democratic socialism. Well, let's move, let's move on to the Senate. And it seems to be extremely tight. I think 538 has a, a genuine, almost a genuine toss up now, slight advantage to the Democrats, uh, because of the way the seats are looking and, the, and what the Democrats have to do to retain the Senate gives them a slight advantage. But the key states look to, from, a, from a glance at the map earlier, they look still to be Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I think, would you say that Georgia, Nevada and Pennsylvania are the key ones there to look at? Yes. Those are the three likeliest tipping point states in our forecast, which similar to the districts that I mentioned earlier, the tipping point state in the Senate is the seat that gives Democrats either their 50th Senate seat or Republicans their 51st Senate seat. The differential there is because if it's a tie, as it currently is, the vice president, who is currently a Democrat, breaks that tie. So Democrats need to get 50 seats. Republicans need to get 51 seats to control the chamber. And the current state of play in Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia is this. Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, he's an incumbent in Georgia, has held his own a bit better than the Democrats in Nevada and Pennsylvania. He's running against Herschel Walker, who is, as some people may know, a pretty scandal-plagued candidate himself. In Nevada, we've seen the Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto go from somewhere around a four-point lead in the polls to about even with Adam Laxalt, her Republican challenger. In Pennsylvania, we've seen the most dramatic movement. So last month, John Fetterman, the Democrat, had about on average, a 10-point polling lead in the state over Dr. Oz, the Republican challenger. Looking this morning, it's at about a two-point advantage. And, you know, recently the two candidates debated, which was a somewhat high-profile political event here in the States because John Fetterman had a stroke earlier in the year, and it was his first debate performance and one of his sort of first high-profile events, even taking questions from the press. And you know, he seemed to struggle a little bit in terms of communicating his ideas and engaging in the debate with Oz. 
you know, I don't think we have enough polling information yet to say that the narrowing is based on that because almost all of the narrowing in the polls happened before the debate. It was down to about a three-point polling lead for John Fetterman before the debate even took place. But in the coming days, we'll see how close that gets. You know, one of the reasons that you were saying Democrats have an advantage in the Senate is because of those three states where we really think this race is going to play out, Democrats have an incumbent in Georgia and Nevada, and then it's an open race in Pennsylvania. In general, incumbents do better than non-incumbents. Again, as our politics have become more polarized, incumbency matters less because just characteristics of a candidate themselves matter less than whether you think they'll pull the D level lever or the R lever once they get to Congress. But nonetheless, incumbents have sort of name recognition advantage, fundraising advantage. You know, sometimes running a statewide race is a challenge. It's hard. It's difficult to get used to. So having done it before is can be an advantage as well. So yeah, that's basically why the, the race is 50-50. And just to mention a couple of the other states that you said, you know, Arizona, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, those are all competitive races, North Carolina as well. But the way to think about it is probably like, if Republicans are winning Arizona, Democrats have probably already lost Nevada. And so that's why the focus is more on those states. Like, And likewise, if Republicans are winning Pennsylvania, they've certainly already won Wisconsin. And so it's really going to come down to this sort of narrow set of three super close races, even if there are certainly other states in play. That's very interesting indeed. Uh, Finally, we should touch a bit on the gubernatorial races, which are very important as well, and often in international coverage tend to get overlooked. What are the most significant governor races for observers to look out for? Well, I guess there's a couple different ways to look at this. One, in a post-Roe v. Wade country, state legislatures become more significant to what abortion law looks like from state to state. And so in some states, the question of abortion is literally on the ballot as a ballot measure. You know, voters can vote on what they want abortion law to look like. Michigan is one of those states, but they also have a gubernatorial race. And the current Democratic governor there, Gretchen Whitmer has sort of positioned herself in many ways as a referendum on abortion. You know, she has been an early and frequent defender of the Roe v. Wade status quo or status quo ante. And, you know, she's running on other things as well. I think one of her her biggest issues is just infrastructure and roads and things like that. But I think it will be important in states where abortion is literally on the ballot and sort of metaphorically on the ballot because a change in state legislature control will change the law. Those are certainly states to look at. And that also includes Arizona. I think to some degree that includes, you know, Georgia and Florida. But, you know, in a state like New York, the polls have shown a closer race recently. I don't think that ultimately a Republican will win in New York. But the Republican candidate in New York has said that he doesn't intend to change abortion law on the state level. Nonetheless, the current incumbent Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul, has, you know, again, positioned herself as a bulwark to ensure, you know, the right to legal abortion in the state, etc. So those are states to watch if you're interested in the politics of abortion in the U.S. There are a couple other states to watch where we'll see... An interesting dynamic play out when it comes to the to backlash to a party that seems to have, have maybe overstepped. So 
gubernatorial races are less partisan than House or Senate races. And this is because in some ways, maybe interestingly enough, voters seem to be able to acknowledge that members of the House and members of the Senate, in some ways, don't always have that much responsibility. You know, they're oftentimes just pulling a D lever or an R lever. If they're really good at their jobs, they can change nationwide policy. But ultimately, in a really partisan environment, your most important issue is like, are you siding with the Democrats or are you siding with the Republicans? Governors have a pretty different job, which is executive power for an entire state and responsibility for administrating governmental services that range from, you know, the most mundane to the most complex. And we see, therefore, more cross-partisan voting. You know, that's why we currently have a popular Republican governor in one of the bluest states in the country, which is Massachusetts. You know, Louisiana, a very red state, has had popular Democratic governors. You know, Maryland is another example, very Democratic state that has a popular Republican governor today. And so when it comes to the people actually administering state governments, people are maybe a little more serious about candidate quality as opposed to just whether you have a D or an R next to your name. Where are we seeing that play out this election? The prime target is Oregon. Oregon has a quite unpopular Democratic governor. You know, she lost a lot of popularity based on sort of the significant increases in crime and homelessness in the state. On top of that, an independent is running in this race as well. And she's an independent who used to be a Democrat and maybe siphoning off more Democratic voters. And so the Republican seems to have a real shot. Our forecast shows that as a 50-50 proposition in Oregon. You know, another close race is Oklahoma, where the Democratic challenger is only a point behind the Republican incumbent. It's kind of difficult to imagine a Democrat actually winning in Oklahoma, but worth keeping an eye on. Anyway, you know, there's currently a Democratic governor of Kansas who looks like she may well win re-election. That's another example of just backlash to a hyper-partisan governor who maybe wasn't as good at administering state government. I could go on, but governor's races are kind of interesting because it's one area where American voters are still more willing to cross party lines. Gaden, that is all very, very interesting indeed. Thank you very much for coming on to Americano. I do hope we'll get you on again. I hope you're not too busy over the next uh, eight or nine days. You know, the the coffee keeps me going. (laughs) Thanks so much for uh, having me on, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.